Good morning, Christ Central Church. We're not awake yet. That's okay. Good morning. As Daniel said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and it's an honor and privilege to share with you this morning God's Word. We're continuing in our sermon series in the book of Galatians, uh, entitled Centered Faith, and this is our second sermon in that series. I'm going to invite you now, if you're able, to stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. This is Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24. Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God, violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word, because your word is truth. God, I pray that you would remove any barrier that might be in the way from you working in our hearts and in our lives. I pray that we would be open and receptive to what you have today. pray that for myself and for each person here. God, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I want to begin this morning, much like Paul does in his letter, by sharing a little bit of my story. Most of you probably don't know that although I grew up in a Christian home, the gospel didn't really stick for me. Although I danced in and out of the church throughout most of my childhood, by the end of high school I decided that Christianity was was pretty lame and it just wasn't for me. And so I threw in my Christian Sunday best, my church clothes, and took on a new persona, a new way of living. And from that point forward, I began to pursue pleasure with a reckless abandon. If you're familiar with the prodigal son story in Luke 15, I was the younger son. And so I carried this passion for wild living into college, 
and I chose to go to the University of Alabama because it looked like fun. Uh, young people, that's not a good way to make a college decision. And then after arriving, I decided to join a fraternity because I felt confident this would increase my odds of having a great time while in college. And I was right. I had a great time for three years in college. I didn't attend a lot of class, but I definitely had a lot of fun. My parents, bear with me, there is redemption in this story. I'm not going to try to ruin your kids this morning. Because you see, what happened was I was living this life of reckless abandon, and then towards the end of my junior year in college, my little brother began to pursue me. He invited me to a church retreat. I had an encounter with Jesus Christ, and my life 180 in 48 hours. That was my Damascus Road experience. But what I want to highlight this morning is what happened after that weekend. I went back to my fraternity house, and I began to live differently. And then a few months later, I decided I was going to lead a Bible study. And I didn't know how to lead a Bible study. I didn't know anything. I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew I had this book, and it was true. And so I was going to try to teach it. And you wouldn't believe what happened. I, I hosted this Bible study. I invited all my friends, and I come into the dining hall, and there's a room full of men, all eager to hear the Word of God. Why? Why in the world did all these wild and crazy guys come and show up to listen to the Word of God preached? It wasn't because they knew I'd be a good teacher. It wasn't because they were particularly interested in the Bible, but it was because they knew that I knew them, that I had tasted their way of life, that I had experienced everything that they had experienced. And for the first time, somebody who was bringing the Bible to them was one of them, and they could connect with that. And so they kept coming and listening and hearing, and God worked. Paul is writing here to a church that is struggling. This church has made some costly mistakes, and as a result, as Daniel mentioned last week, they are not enjoying the freedom and joy that is ours in Christ anymore. And yet what we're going to see this morning is that the reason Paul's letter carries so much weight to the church at Galatia is because he's been there. Like me in the fraternity house, Paul knew exactly what the Galatians were dealing with. He had tasted their specific brokenness before. He believed the same lies that they were believing. And so that's why this letter carries so much weight, because the Galatians are receiving it as somebody who's been there, right where they're at. In Christ Central Church, what I believe is that we also have been there. That we have erred in much the same ways as the Galatians. And so I pray that you would find the same comfort that they did, that Paul understands what you're going through. He understands the ways that you are struggling, because he's been there too. And so I pray this morning that this letter is particularly encouraging for you. As we begin to dive into our text the essence of Paul's message to the Galatians is that you've been given this precious gift, and yet it's been taken from you. It's been stolen from you. And so this morning, as we look at our text, I want to look at first the thieves. Who is it that has stolen the Galatians' freedom and joy in Christ? And in turn, who has stolen our freedom and joy in Christ? 
Secondly, I want to look at how we can wage war against these thieves. How do we go to battle with these things that want to rob us of our joy? And then lastly, I want to paint a picture for you of what victory can look like in your life. So who are these thieves? How do we beat them? And what happens when we win? Let's dive in to our text. Who are the thieves? What is it that robs us of the freedom and joy that we have been so graciously given in Christ? About 10 years ago, I worked at a nonprofit in Durham called Urban Hope. Urban Hope is a neighborhood ministry that exists. This is their vision to raise up generations of young heroes who are beating the odds by the grace of God. Before I got to Durham to work with Urban Hope, I didn't really understand what beating the odds was all about. I had no idea what that meant. I didn't understand how our society so profoundly and authoritatively is communicating to the children in distressed neighborhoods that you're nothing, that you're worthless, that you are a menace to society. And you know, you know and I know that that's a lie and that's from the pits of hell and it smells like smoke. But the reality is that lie is costly because as a result, so many of these young boys and girls are believing that lie. They're convinced that it's true. And it does so much damage to our communities. Believing a lie can be so costly. It can bear so much. It can cause so much wreckage. And that's what's happening in Galatia. The people of God have begun to believe a lie. And that lie is robbing them of the freedom and joy that we have in Christ. So what is the lie? What's, the, what's this thing that's robbing them? Look at verse 13 and 14. Paul says, You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. You see what Paul's doing here? He's beginning, and he's, he's grabbing hold of the Galatians right here, and he's saying, I get you. I've been there. I used to believe that exact same lie. And that lie that I believed is that my worth and value is wrapped up in what I do, in my performance. I was convinced of that. I only matter if I perform well. God's acceptance of me is based entirely on my obedience, on my ability to get it right. He's saying, I get that. I've been there. And what we see in verse 13 and 14 is that this lie often manifests itself in two very different ways. And what Paul is showing is that I've believed them both. In both ways, I have been perverted and tainted by this lie. And those two, two ways that this lie manifests itself in our life is either we become convinced that we're good enough, that we've performed well, and we don't need God, or we become convinced of the opposite, opposite, that we're just too messed up. That we have failed miserably, and there's no way that God can possibly love us. And so I want to take a moment and look more closely at these two different ways that this lie, this performance-based Christianity shows up, and how it can wreck your life. Let's first look at this idea that I'm too good. Believing that we have performed well enough. Let's look again at this first verse. Paul says, verse 14, I was advanced in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, 
so extremely zealous was I for the traditions. Paul is describing here how he identified himself prior to his conversion. And what we see here is that he was convinced that he was good enough. Paul's righteousness was rooted in how good he was at Judaism, how well he was performing compared to his Jewish classmates, and how zealous he was for God. He loved God with all his heart. And what Paul is telling the Galatians here, and he's saying this from personal experience, is that there's no joy to be found there. I tried it. And the reason I know is because I did it better than all of you. I really was the best. He was the best at following the law. He was passionate and zealous, and he was working so hard, and he was laboring, and he was really good at it, and yet he kept coming up short. He could not find joy and freedom in Christ. How do we know if that's the path that we're on? How do we know if that's you? How do we know if you're living in that way? I want to put a few questions before you that might help you. Do you ever find comfort when others around you fail? I mean, not out loud. I hope you don't go, hallelujah, you just screwed up. That's awesome. But inside, do you find a little reassurance when you see your friend or your neighbor or your classmate get caught in a lie, struggle with addiction, yell at their kids? At least I'm not as bad as them. At least I don't screw up like they do. Or do you find yourself getting mad when things don't go your way? When God doesn't seem to reward you like He should? You're working so hard, you're being so obedient, you're doing everything just right, and then all this junk just keeps happening. And you want to say, what's the big deal, God? Haven't you seen... Or maybe on the other side of the equation, do you feel better about yourself when you have your quiet time seven days in a row? Where you share your, the gospel with your neighbor, or you give to the poor, or you serve here on Sunday mornings? Does that make you feel like you're worthy, like you've been good enough? If the answer is yes, and it is for me and for many of us, then you're quite possibly believing this lie that your worth is rooted in your performance based on how much better you are than everybody else. Another person who dealt with this same exact struggle, Daniel talked about this last week, was Martin Luther. And it was through him reading this letter that he discovered that he also had been robbed of this freedom and joy because his, birth, his worth and value was so rooted in how good he was. Listen to how he described himself before Galatians got a hold of his life. He said, I crucified Christ daily in my cloistered life, living as a monk, and blasphemed God by my wrong faith. Outwardly, I kept myself chaste, poor, and obedient. I was much given to fasting, watching, praying, saying of masses, and the like. Yet under the cloak of my outward respectability, I continually mistrusted, doubted, feared, hated, and blasphemed God. My righteousness was a filthy puddle. And Luther goes on to say, he says, Satan loves such saints. They are his darlings, for they quickly destroy their body and soul by depriving them of the blessings of God's generous gifts. Is that you? 
Are you one of those Satan, saints that Satan loves? His darling? They're so wrapped up in your performance and getting it right that you've robbed yourself of the joy that we can have in Christ. Or maybe for you, the lie manifests itself in a different way. Maybe you're trusting in your performance, but not doing it good enough. And you've come, become convinced that you're too bad. You're beyond the reach of God's grace. You're a hot mess. And you can't fathom that God would ever love a screw-up like you. What we see in our text is that Paul erred this way as well. Look at verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. We see multiple places in Paul's letters where he is wrestling with how awful he was. Paul was a bad dude. He stood and held the cloaks while the firing squad took out Stephen, one of the most significant leaders in the early church. He watched them murder him. No doubt Paul had some sleepless nights replaying these scenes in his mind of all the horrible things that he did. And he must have questioned, could God ever love a wretch like me? If God really knew all that I had done. I wonder how many of us can relate to that. We lie in bed and we play back the scene after scene of sin in your life. Sin that you've never told anybody, but it's etched in your mind. And you're convinced that God would never love someone as messed up as you. I shared this story with you all before. I'm going to share it again, though. There was a pivotal moment in my Christian life a few years ago. I was in vocational ministry and had been for some time now. And, and slowly but surely, my zeal for the Lord, for His Word, for His people, had begun to wane. I began to not care anymore about anyone or anything cared little if people came to Christ and if they grew in grace and spending time with Jesus became just blah, mundane. And because of this, I had an emotional meltdown of sorts. I didn't know what to do. I was a professional Christian who didn't like Jesus anymore. That's not good. And so what did I do? I went into hiding. I quit being honest with anyone about my own struggles. And why did I have to hide? That's the key. Why did I have to hide? Well, it's because I was believing this lie. I was believing that my worth and value were so wrapped up in my performance, in my zeal for God. And if I didn't have that zeal, I had nothing. I was no one. I didn't matter. And as a result, I was being robbed of the freedom and joy that is found in Christ. I can imagine some of you can relate to that. Certainly, for different reasons, but your hearts are likewise believing that you're not good enough. And that if, if anyone really knew the depths of who you are, they would certainly agree that you are not worthy of God's love. And it's here again, you're believing the exact same lie. You're believing that your worth is rooted in your performance. But unlike the one who believes they're good, you in turn are convinced that you're way, way, way too bad. 
And the truth is that we all need to see is that whether we believe we're too good or too bad and whether we flip-flop depending on the day, we're all leading this life that inevitably leads to the absence of joy and freedom that God wants us to have in Christ. There's no joy there. And that's why Paul's so upset. That's why Paul wants to throw down because he knows that this life is miserable. And he wants to set them free. Which brings us to our second point this morning. How do we wage war? How do we fight against these lies that we all believe? How do we recapture the gift of freedom and grace in Christ? The good news for us this morning is that both thieves have a weakness. They have a fatal flaw, and when exposed, that weakness makes them powerless. And so I want to show you how we can attack. First, let's look at this lie that says, I'm too good. The way that we expose the weakness of this lie is through tasting the unmerited favor of Jesus Christ. If there was ever a verse in the Bible that should be, more, should, that should be paradigm shifting, it's verse 15. Look at the text. Paul says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born... This is so fundamentally huge for us as Christians. Paul is describing what often has been referred to as the doctrine of election. The idea that God decided long before you were even a twinkle in your mother's eye that you would be His. Long before you had a chance to earn it, to prove it, to make Him want to love you, He picked you. He said, you're mine, and I love you. And He set His love on us. That is so freeing for those of us who are trying to be good enough. To know that His love was gifted before we even had a chance to earn it. And when that penny drops, it will set you free. Let me show you what I mean. My youngest daughter is just starting to talk, and one of her favorite phrases right now is, Watch this. Watch this. So she's always running around the house shouting, Watch this, watch this, watch this. And then she'll lay on the floor and like stick a leg up in the air and smile. Watch this, you know, and I think she's working on her break dancing. I don't know. I'm not sure what she's doing. But when she does it, she looks up at me and she has this huge grin on her face. Why is she grinning? Well, she knows that she is going to get affirmation upon affirmation from me. It doesn't matter what she does. I'm going to tell her, that's awesome. I love it. That's great. Wonderful. I'm so proud of you. She knows that that's coming. And so she can smile up at me and be assured that my love is coming to her. Contrast that with what I'm sure many of you who played youth sports at least saw or maybe even experienced. And this is the kid whose dad has unhealthy expectations for them on the field. This is the kid whose dad is a little too involved in their athletics. And for this kid, there's no watch this dad because he or she knows dad's watching. There's no question about that. And there's no grin. There's a look of terror. Because if I don't get it right, if I don't get a hit, if I don't make this basket, dad's going to be upset. What's the difference in those two examples? My daughter, she knows She's got my eye, and that she's got my unconditional approval. 
And so she's free to express herself. She doesn't really care if it's silly or if it's not quite right. She has the freedom to just enjoy. But the second child, he or she knows all too well that the father's approval is conditional. It's whether or not she hits the ball or he mates the basket. And so he or she lives in fear, laboring to get the approval that feels always a little out of reach. Some of you see God as father number two. He's got his eye on you, but you better get it right or he's going to smack you. He's going to shame you. He's going to be so disappointed in you. How do we get out of that? How do we get out of that cycle of belief? You get out of that by tasting his unmerited favor. And the sad news for us is you can't really taste it except for in your failure. You taste it when you strike out. And when you fall into that same sin that you've been battling over and over and over again for your whole life, and then you turn to look up at God, and you wonder if He's going to smack you, and he's, he's there smiling. And His arms are open, and He receives you back into His arms. And He affirms you. I'm proud of you. love you. That's never going to change. A prayer for myself and for all of us who has been convinced that we're too good is that we'll fail. And that we'll see that failure and we'll get to experience God moving towards us in our failure. But what about the, the other thief, the thief that says, I'm too bad? That's pursuing performance but knows that I'm not good enough. Thankfully, this thief has a fatal flaw too. And strangely enough, the way to expose the weakness of this lie is by recognizing that this thief is actually right. We must drink in the full weight of the badness, of the filth, of the wretchedness that is true of all of us. But what makes this thief so destructive is that he tells a half-truth. He only gives us half of the story. One of my favorite bands is called Shane and Shane, and they have a wonderful song about this. It's called Embracing Accusations. I want to read the lyrics to you because it's just spot on. They say, The devil is preaching the song of the redeemed, that I am cursed and gone astray. I cannot gain salvation. Embracing accusations. Could the father of lives, could Satan be telling the truth of God to me tonight? If the penalty of sin is death, then death is mine. I hear him saying, cursed are the ones who can't abide. He's right. Hallelujah, he's right. Oh, the devil's singing over me an age-old song that I am cursed and gone astray. Singing the verse so conveniently over me, he's forgotten the refrain. Jesus saves. He's forgotten the refrain. Jesus saves. The way that we conquer this lie is by not forgetting the refrain. We are wretched, and yet Jesus saves. I was talking with someone recently who has really been struggling in their walk with Jesus, and this person has really felt defeated. This person was sharing how they know the truth, but it just doesn't seem to stick. It just rolls off of them. 
and how they've kind of come to a place of giving up, of resolving that the gospel will never be sweet to them again, that they will never taste the joy and freedom that's ours in Christ. And then this person shared with me how they were just recently reminded of this massive truth, the truth that we can't move our own hearts, that we can't fix ourselves, that we can't work our way out of the ditch, but Jesus can. That he meets us in the ditch, that he weeps with and for us, and he, he alone can pull us out. And it was through that fresh reminder of the truth, of the refrain, that enabled this person, at least for a moment, to stop hating themselves. To stop believing the lies and feeling so defeated and to cling to the hope that Jesus saves and that he can and will bring me out. Maybe you're in that ditch right now and you've given up any hope of getting out. You've just resolved to believe the first verse that you're cursed and gone astray. I pray this morning, maybe just this morning, that you would hear the refrain once again, Jesus saves. He saves. He can pull you out. I want to conclude by looking at what victory looks like. What it looks like when we begin to live out of the freedom and joy that's ours in Christ. Look with me at the last verse in our passage, verse 24. Paul is talking about how he was converted, and then he went to Syria and Cilicia to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And the church is back in Judea, the hub of this movement, heard about what Paul was doing. In verse 24, they were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. What does victory look like? Victory looks like when we are resting in the joy and freedom of the gospel, that we are compelled to carry the good news to a world who desperately needs to hear. And we do this not in order to earn his favor, not to be good enough, but because we are so overwhelmed that he has declared us good in Christ. Not long after Luther got a hold of this letter, his message changed. He began to preach a different message, no longer the gospel of performance, but the gospel of free grace to those who are profoundly undeserved. And he was teaching this gospel, and one of his mentors, Dr. Johann Stolpitz, said this in reference to the content of Luther's new message. He said, I like it well that the doctrine which you proclaim gives glory to God alone and not to man. It's a wonderful sign for us. When we're living in this victory, God alone gets the glory. It's all about Him. One of the greatest visuals of this idea, and I want you to take this home with you, is found in Psalm 133. David here is referring to the anointing of Aaron, the high priest, and he says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. What a beautiful picture of what it looks like to enjoy and live in this gift of freedom and joy. The oil is the symbol of God's grace. 
And what we see here is that God pours out that oil on Aaron, but not just a little bit. He pours way too much. It is an abundance of grace that God is showering on Aaron. And as Aaron is showered in grace, he's delighting in the freedom and joy that's in Christ. But don't miss the visual. Because it's so much oil, so much grace, it pours down his head, down his beard, down his coat, and begins to spill off of his clothes. And it spills off of his clothes onto everyone that's around him. It's an abundance, it's an overflow of God's grace. Living in the freedom of gospel means that of the gospel means we're showered with God's grace, and it's so much grace that we can't help but allow it to spill out of us onto those around us. And I pray that that would be the visual that is lived out at Christ Central Church. That we live in the freedom and joy that's in Christ, and that freedom and joy is in such abundance that is ever forever overflowing on everyone that we come in contact with. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I confess that I, it's so hard for me to remain in this centered faith, to cling to the freedom and joy that is in Christ. I so often believe the lies that I'm good enough, that I'm, I don't need you. I don't need your grace. And then a moment later, I'm convinced that I'm not good enough, that I'm too bad, that your grace is not enough for me. God, I pray that you would bring us back to the centered faith that says we are enough because of Christ. That you have chosen to set your love on us before we were even born. You shower us with your grace like you pour out the oil on Aaron. And I pray that that abundance of grace would flow out of us into the world around us. I pray that in Jesus' name.